Because there's always more to learn, join us for Enlighten Me. Each episode takes on one topic, one question, maybe even a controversial idea, and we go on a deep dive with our expert researchers to share some facts and shed some light on the subject. We learn something new every episode, and hopefully you will too. Listen on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. New episodes released each month. Hello and welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University. I'm your host, Dan Seed from the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. It might seem a bit out of season for this topic, but the season we're heading into is now critical for one of the unmistakable aspects of summer, fireflies. And like the rest of the natural world, it seems these days, fireflies are facing serious challenges and declines. We're joined by Ben Pfeiffer, who graduated from Texas State with his bachelor's in biology and is the founder of Firefly Conservation and Research, which can be found by visiting firefly.org. Ben is also a certified naturalist with the Texas Department of Parks and Wildlife. His expertise has been featured in media outlets such as the Washington Post, Texas Monthly, Smithsonian Magazine, the CBS Morning News, and others. Ben, welcome to the program. Glad to have you. Yeah, Dan, thanks for having me. It's great to so, be here. Yeah, and, and so Ben, you're a sixth-generation Texan. You grew up in the Hill Country. What are your first memories of falling in love with the outdoors? Well, um, I, I grew up in the Hill Country, but also in South Texas, too. I just spent a lot of time um, you know, in South Texas as a kid on my family's ranch. My grandfather was an attorney, but he also ran cattle, and so we just basically spent a lot of times outdoors. As a kid, I also spent a lot of time outdoors. We had a green belt in the back of our house. And so it just kind of cultured a, a love for the, the native parts of Texas and just allowed me to kind of get into know them a little bit better. And that fostered a love of biology that led to going to Texas State to work on a biology degree. And how did you become so interested in fireflies? We'll get into your research and, and all that here in a minute, but what was that initial spark that, that made you go, these things are really cool? It was a chance a kayak trip actually in Puerto Rico. I went to a bioluminescent lagoon when I was a teenager and I got a chance to kayak back there into one of the protected lagoons that has this organism called a dinoflagellate. And when you disturb the water, it glows. And that kind of initial exposure to bioluminescence really like got my interest. And so, you know, I had a fascination of that. And it wasn't until kind of years later that the firefly thing came about. And I just had an opportunity to kind of explore that a little bit more. And then it just kind of went on, took off from there. To you, right, you, you kind of came to it maybe a little later in life, you know, it wasn't some childhood thing where you're fascinated by them. But I have two kids and they're fascinated by fireflies. They, they look at them and it's almost like a magical thing. What to you makes them so interesting and magical? That's a good question. I, I would say that when you're out in a habitat, for example, and you see four to five different species like flashing at the same time with different flash patterns, even different colors, it's a magical experience. I love the evening and that twilight period. And it's just a really like calm and serene period that, you know, activity is just starting to pick up from the, the heat of the day. And it's just like this kind of unfolding story that happens 15 minutes before dusk into the evening. And then as it progresses, you know, into late evening, you know, you get everything from fireflies to animal sounds to 
just so many things going on. And so I just love that part. And that's kind of a magical part when I get out and do field research. I love to study habitats and get out in the field. And so that's kind of what it brings me there. And then also the you know, the, the amount of discovery, potentially finding something new and exploring stuff that hasn't been seen before. So you mentioned four or five different species of fireflies. How many species are there? And and talk a little bit about, you mentioned, touched on it, the, the differences in their colors and what they do. Can, can you expand on that a little bit? So to most people's surprise, Texas has about 40 species of, of fireflies. And I'm, blue, I'm surprised, I have yeah. to admit. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I know, a firefly right? was a firefly was a firefly. Yeah, I know. And that's what most people thought. That's what I once thought. You know, you see a firefly flashing and you assume it's just the same one that's flashing nearby. But the reality is, is that we have some of the highest diversity in Texas compared to other states in the United States. And so it, it's a really great thing. And those include like diurnal fireflies, the nighttime flying, and then also daytime species as well. So it's quite the abundance. And then you've got different genuses and families, and those all have different characteristics. And Texas is such a diverse ecoregion. It has many diverse ecoregions. And so that has created some elements for, you know, speciation to occur, just lots of neat kind of cool habitat-specific fireflies to occur that just like just occur in the hill country, for example. And so that's really cool. So in our area, right, where we are, central Texas, the hill country in San Marcos, what are the most common kinds of fireflies that we see and and what do they show at night? Like what makes them different or unique? So in the the Edwards Plateau region, which would be defined of kind of where we're at and like San Marcos, New Braunfels area, those are, we've got unique species that start here and then basically go north and west and east a bit to encompass a, you know, about a, a 10 county range. And we've got some endemic species. We have Photinus concesis, uh, which is an endemic species that just occurs here in the hill country. It goes all the way to kind of Val Verde County and then a few counties upwards. You can see this firefly pretty regularly in pretty good habitats and it flashes every two seconds or so. And then we've got some of the other really cool species like Faturus uh, Bill Browneye, which is a firefly that will synchronize this flash in large groups. and it has a double twinkle flash and it likes to fly along tree lines actually. Mm. And females will oftentimes congregate within ditches along a road, for example. It just is kind of their, their just ideal spot. And so those are really fun to, to watch because you can, you, when you see a firefly is doing a, a twinkle flash, a double flash every one second, it, it, it's a really cool kind of experience to see that. So. We have that. We also have, there's some some rare species here. Got one species that I worked on with uh, International Conservation for Union and Nature that end up becoming listed as possibly endangered. It's a, a species that probably was a held over from a, a, a warmer climate, you know, thousands of years ago. And it's a pyractomena species that will flash kind of an, a bright amber color. Mm. So I'm, I'm doing research and constantly looking out for that. But we also have some small uh, Photina species. Um, and these are fireflies that are like about the size of a grain of rice. And so when I mention kind of four to five species, you might have fireflies of just different sizes, you know, in a habitat in, in, a, in a really good place. And they can just be kind of different sizes and different behaviors. You know, Photinus dismissus and Photinus granulatus are ones that we will see here. And then there's one Photinus texanus that's common as well. And it's a small little firefly. 
So I am curious, though, you mentioned the males and the females, and, you know, we see this in nature, like cardinals, for example, it's the males that are the brighter colors, the females are more muted. Is it both males and females that produce the light, or is it one or the other? Both produce light. The female's light signal is a little bit dimmer sometimes because they have smaller light organs, and the males have two light organs in the abdominal segments, and they, they both flash similar colors. There's slight differences. Females might be a little greener uh, than males, for example, and sometimes they're completely in the yellow spectrum as well. So yeah, the, the, the flashes can differ and, you know, it's kind of in the yellowish greenish spectrum, nanometer spectrum that's relatively pretty weak actually for most cases. Yeah, some will kind of flash in kind of the amber direction as well. I've seen all kinds of flashes in, in varieties of different colors here in Texas. Is it a mating deal or is it just something that they do on the regular? Yeah, uh, why do they flash, right? Yes. You know, like what's this business of flashing in the first right. place? It's it's like, are they just doing it for our entertainment or is it for <laughs> like actual real reason? It's a form of, of sexual selection, essentially. Uh, uh, females are are attuned to certain differences within male flash timing and male flash strength, essentially. And so what the female is looking for is basically males that have longer flashes or faster flash rates. And there was research that was done on this to kind of look at that. And you can see that kind of reflected in the you know habitat when you go out and you will watch a female flash towards a male. Oftentimes she'll pick a bigger one that's got a bigger, brighter flash or a longer flash. And so, yeah, there it's it's a it's a quick form. They only live for a couple of weeks. And so they've mm. got, you know, minimal time in order to kind of find each other. And females are relatively choosy. You know, they they can sometimes there'll be tons of males flying around and they'll just sit there quietly and, you know, just till they see the right one that they're looking for. But yeah, it's 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 kind of how they they find each other. So it's one of my favorite parts of summer, same with my kids, to be outside. You look out the window and the fireflies turn on, I guess, so to speak. When we see them light up, what are we actually seeing? What's actually, what causes that reaction? It's two compounds, basically. It's luciferase and luciferin. And luciferase is kind of an amino acid, essentially. And luciferin is an enzymatic catalyst that charges that molecule essentially. And what's happening is when fireflies breathe in oxygen, it basically powers that reaction essentially hmm. for that process to happen for the luciferin molecule to kind of charge up within that amino acid. And then once it gets fully charged, it releases photons of light. And the, the fireflies need to breathe in oxygen. And there's a combination of other chemicals that are in there as well. But you can kind of think of it like miniature lightning. When they breathe in, it's this like kind of miniature lightning storm that happens within their abdominal segments. This process repeats over and over as luciferin charges up and then it releases photons of light and it just starts all over constantly. So they they regulate the flashing based on their breathing. And that's kind of what you're seeing. And so a funny experiment you can do is you can actually take laughing gas and you can put it in a jar with fireflies. And what it will do is it basically stops their ability to like regulate the amount of oxygen. So they just constantly absorb it. And so they just basically constantly glow. It's kind of a, a funny thing. And that kind of proves that, you know, they, they're breathing in oxygen in order to power that reaction. But that's the, it's what it is. It's really what it come, boils down to. That's interesting. Again, we're joined by Ben Pfeiffer, a Texas State alum and the founder of Firefly Conservation and Research. So, so Ben, 
Firefly Conservation and Research came about in 2009, and what I've read is that it began with a New Year's resolution. Most people are focused on losing weight, exercising, eating healthy, and you're out here thinking about fireflies. How did you land on that as your resolution and kind of the drive at that time to start this group? Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. Around Thanksgiving time in the previous year in 2008, I'd heard this brief report, this little clip about firefly decline that somebody had mentioned. I mean, but it was like, a, you know, a seconds of a, a clip and I just, somebody just kind of casually mentioned it. And I, I thought that was really interesting. And I wanted to kind of explore that more. And then I had bought the domain firefly.org at an expiring domain auction. And my background is in web development and SEO. And so uh, I have lots of experience on the web. So I just had this scenario of, well, well, I got this domain, I'm interested in this. And I called in a few favors and I said, well, what if I can get this thing done by like January 1st? And sure enough, it got done within a couple months, which usually never happens in web development. It usually mm -hmm. takes months and months and months. And I just launched this little website and it, the design was really cool. And I worked really hard on the, the, the kind of writing for it as well and exploring the issues. And it just kind of took off from there. And, you know, that led to kind of just this burning desire I had to kind of know what species diversity was here in Texas and, and start asking a lot of questions people really hadn't asked before. Um, and that kind of led to the website and the growth from it from there. What were some of those questions that you had that you hadn't seen in, in research or other discussions that piqued your interest? Well, I wanted to know uh, what was the like species diversity here in Texas. Nobody had really done a tally, essentially. You know, there were uh, some unofficial kind of ones and in insect collections, but nobody had really done kind of an official tally. And so, you know, I started with actually mapping out the state and looking at the by the tribe level for Lampyridae, which is the family that fireflies are in, and kind of taking it a, a notch down and looking by county. And I developed this map basically of Texas that was color coded based on that county and the species diversity in each county. So you could look at a county like Comal or Hayes County and say, oh, well, there's four, four different colors. And so it's just a nice visual representation of that. And then, you know, you've got to start diving into scientific literature and being really kind of serious about that to understand it. So you know, some of these, this literature was written in the 1890s, for example, some of these like entomologists or naturalists would come through Texas right after the settlers came and you're reading their reports and their descriptions of fireflies in such a language that's very hard to understand. So it's like you had to go back and learn new vocabulary in order to understand how they talked about fireflies and even other insects, because it's a language that people don't really speak unless you're really this is kind of your job or your, your research focus. So, you know, it was kind of diving in that. And I had some really great people um, at Texas A&M and a couple others that were encouraging me and teaching me. And I learned a lot from them. And, and that served as kind of a base for, you know, my knowledge going forward. So I got a really credible, almost like, like a master's level education in entomology mm -hmm. and like how I should approach it from a, a really credible way, as opposed to just a kind of a casual way of, you know, we might look at this and, but yeah, I, you know, my experience with biology at Texas State helped with that a lot in terms of helping to do credible work and research to, to help advance the knowledge of, that we have here of fireflies in Texas. Is studying fireflies rare? Like, are you one of a kind or are there large No, not of one of a kind. I, I will say there's probably a handful 
12 people or so than the United States that kind of study fireflies. Right. So it's um, rare. Yeah. Yeah. It, and so it, it's just a hard thing to study because you have to, as an entomologist, you have to study the flash pattern, but also the morphology of the insect. And sometimes entomologists or biologists, they just have to study the morphology of it. And when you add the flash pattern component, it just adds a whole level of complexity. One, it, it attracted me to that, but also it makes it a lot more difficult. And so my point being is that it can be a kind of a difficult thing to get into. It just takes a lot of time and years and you've got to get out in habitats too, to learn it. You can't necessarily read about really. Right. And I love the habitat field works part and you got to get out at night too, man. Like people don't realize that there's things that go on at night. I've had poachers that have come by on, on sites that I've studied that wow. I get hidden behind in a bush because I'm afraid I'm going to get shot if I jump out too quickly because I'm gonna look like a deer or something, you know, there's snakes and all sorts of things that pop out at night. I mean, my, my common companions in a, in a firefly habitat are armadillos and owls. And so, you know, it's not uncommon for an armadillo to come out and run underneath my legs and, a, you know, an owl to be perched in a tree overhead, trying to catch a bat or something like that. So, you know, it, it's, you know, you got to get be comfortable with the, the nighttime essentially. And that takes time too, for, for people. Yeah, th those are things I never thought of, you know, because we've all gone out in our backyard and captured fireflies or looked at them. So so being in nature like that definitely provides that different element to it. And it, as I talked about in the intro, one of the reasons that we're having you on this time of year versus like the typical spring summer time of year is because like so much of our ecosystem here in Texas, this is the stretch of the year that we're heading into that's so important. And it's so important for fireflies because it gets cool and wet. Why do these factors matter so much for a, a spring summer crop, so to speak, of fireflies? Uh, Dan, you hit the nail on the head in terms of like kind of honing in on that. December is a, a, an important time. In the life cycle of a firefly, they spend most of their time in the larval state. And that state can last for a year two years, sometimes longer, just depending upon the conditions. And during December in Texas, sometimes we'll get kind of seasonal rains, essentially. And those fireflies are preparing to kind of hibernate in a way. And they're in a growth stage that, you know, they're months away from pupation, you know, five, six months. And December, this time period right now, is just really helpful for them before it gets too cold to just eat as much as possible. And so they're growing and they're in a stage where it's really helpful. So if you get, in my experience, in my research, you know, if you get a really good seasonable wet winter that's mild, for example, that produces a really good firefly year. And it can actually be like a two-year period if you've got, you know, really good winter previous and so that can, can help too. One final thing that's really curious that most people don't know about is that we actually have two seasons of fireflies in Texas. So we have one in the spring and then one in the fall. And the one in the fall, females will lay eggs in say October, November. So you've just got kind of multiple stages and generations that are occurring in a habitat. So you can have really early small larvae and then you can have ones that are like halfway mature. And that just kind of will translate into the next year when the spring hits and it warms up and it causes them to pupate and become adults. You touched on this, and I alluded to it in the introduction as well, that fireflies, like a lot of parts of our ecosystem are being threatened. I would imagine the drought, the extreme temperatures, all of that would be a factor, no? 
there's a lot of factors at play and yeah, drought can definitely uh, influence firefly populations quite a bit. They're really dependent upon moisture. There's a lot of factors that go in habitat, habitat degradation is a, is, is a big one and habitat loss, especially. Really, if you come down and you ask any firefly researcher, one of the main reasons why fireflies are disappearing, they're going to point to habitat loss, really. It's unfortunate that we live in an area that is really beautiful, but also is experienced one of the largest disappearances of native habitat in mm -hmm. the state. It is being replaced by subdivisions and development. And a lot of times those areas are cleared to the bedrock level. It's not uncommon for a new subdivision to go into an area that probably supported fireflies and other, other things. And the developers basically raise the ground to the limestone and start fresh. And it's such a, I mean, this is why they're disappearing is because the loss of habitat. You know, other factors that are in play are light pollution uh, in some degree, and then as well as, you know, some pesticide usage and environmental contamination essentially is what it, uh, a lot. In some other places of the world, ecotourism is an issue, stuff like that. There's a variety of factors that right. go into it. it th think about it like this. Before the, the settlers came to Texas, okay, the springs here were rather vigorous is a good way to put it. You know, there's a lot, lot, of, lot more wet seeps and small springs that were common in this area, um, especially along the Balcones Escarpment where we're at right here that kind of runs along 35. And as the aquifer got pumped, basically a lot of those small seeps, wet springs disappeared. You know, uh, Jacob's Well in Wimberley is a great example of this. Right. There was some reporting this year regarding, you know, how low that was and how they weren't maintaining the, the flows and stuff. Mm -hmm. Back in the 1870s, you know, that was a geyser. It was so much water that came out of that. It was like a dome, essentially. It wasn't a still pond. So that, that's just kind of a great example, a visual example of decline of the aquifer or water tables. So I noticed, and I had this conversation with my wife this summer, and this is from my own backyard in South Austin, established neighborhood, low light pollution, not a whole lot of growth happening around where we are. And obviously this isn't a large sample size, but that this spring and early summer, late spring, I, I suppose it really was like June, the fireflies in past years were abundant. And this year, they were virtually non-existent. Why might that be? I mean, I know that you can't diagnose, but would that would the freezes that we've had the last few winters impact that along with the warmer temperatures earlier? From the way that I looked at it, and I was out in the field a bunch earlier this year, we had a relatively mild spring, and it was a really pleasant spring. Mm -hmm. And then that led to kind of an immediate quick change to really high temperatures. There was a, a pretty rapid you know, trail off of firefly that you saw afterwards. To answer your question about the freezes, because that, that is a great question. You know, it's one that I kind of wanted to know about, like when I got out. The freezes did impact fireflies quite a bit. One of the advantages of being a firefly researcher is I kind of have historical memory of past firefly seasons. And I can go back to that and go, man, 2016 was an incredible year. That was like once in a 20-year period that we had fireflies. And that, you know, trailed off in the 2017. It was being good in 2018 mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, this year with the freezes in the last two ones, it, it froze so hard that it killed probably a lot of larvae in the right. ground, in the mud, 
that otherwise would have survived, you know, a, a more temperate winter. So that definitely impacted it. Fireflies are relatively tough in the larval state though, so they can survive quite a bit, whether it's floods, even some drought and stuff like that, but you are still gonna have some loss. Really what it comes down to is the food that fireflies need to eat also get killed off. So if the snails and the, 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 the slugs and the worms and you know little small insects and stuff like that, if those disappear, then the firefly larvae don't have much to eat. So that also got impacted. So you kind of have to look at it that way. Yeah, this this summer was real brutal. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating that, you know, next year it's going to be probably be a poor year for fireflies just because of how hot it's been and the kind of the seasons that we've had. But maybe we'll get back to a, a more temperate period where we'll get more rains and that will help recover them. But they're still there. You might not have seen as many in your backyard, but they're still there and uh, they're still doing their thing and they're just waiting for that right environmental time so it got too hot they disappeared and they're just waiting for great good humidity moisture and and ideal conditions to come out again are there things that we can do as homeowners to to attract them certain plants you know again this is the time of year when people you know we're moving into winter and spring and people start thinking about what they're going to do with their yard or there are things that we can do to to create a more conducive habitat I have some of this on my website and I'll be posting some more, more stuff I just wrote really soon mm -hmm. or recently. One of the things they can do is if they want to help encourage fireflies is in your own land or in your own yard, think about the, the property and what it's going to do for males, females, and larvae. So you kind of have to back it up and say, well, I just want, I want fireflies. What do I got to do? But kind of back it up and go, all right, well, if I'm going to provide habitat, and this was kind of a, the process I developed to kind of talk about it was what do we need to provide for females, males, and larvae? And they need a, a diversity of plants and a diversity of different plant heights and species. And so some fireflies like to overwinter in clumps of grass, for example, others like trees. So I would take a critical look at your yard and go, how diverse is my yard for native species? And if it comes up lacking where you lack good amount of native species or they have been removed for whatever reason, look at ways that you can go to a local nursery and start introducing local grasses and local plants that are gonna help retain more soil moisture in your property. Fireflies need that moisture to survive. So these choices are gonna lead to a buildup of a habitat that could potentially support fireflies. People always ask me, they're like, Ben, can I buy fireflies? Can I like go out and like, you know, is there a website? Can I get on Amazon or Etsy and like, you know, order a hundred to come deliver to my door? And unfortunately the answer is no, there's no firefly egg delivery that I know of yet. But the best thing you can do is provide the habitat for them to migrate to you. And fireflies will migrate over time from one area, you know, like a, a habitat to another and you just got to provide the, the the conditions for them. It's similar to like monarchs and, and other, you know, pollinator species, for example, like you provide the flowers right. or the host plant, for example, and they will come. And so it's it's same with fireflies. I would say if you're a rural land manager, you have much larger acreage to consider. And so your considerations are a little bit different somewhat. You want to locate your your water sources and try to figure out the condition of those riparian areas, for example, if you have any, what are the state that they're in? 
Is there a lot of erosion going on? Are plant communities like, you know, solid? Is there overgrazing by cattle or ungulates or, or goats, for example? Goats are one of the top enemies of fireflies because they consume basically all vegetation and they'll do pretty good job to remove fireflies from a yard if you got them. So take a consideration of how your land's being used in ways that are, you know, probably not great for it. The places that, you know, do encourage fireflies are ones that, you know, prioritize, you know, the health of, uh, of the land in diverse plant communities. So a bunch of different considerations. Look at light pollution as well. See where your lights are shining. There's actual credible scientific studies that show that the light interferes with males being able to see females. And mm. if you've got some bright LED lights, for example, that are shining, then probably consider changing those to a more amber colored light and, you know, something like the 2700 Kelvin range or something like that. You want to avoid the really bright 5000 Kelvin LED lights because that basically interferes with the fireflies seeing each other. You can advocate for policies within your local area in city government for better nighttime lighting, for example. One of the latest things that I've seen is these new street lamps that are showing blue light. And all, with all the studies that have gone on about the horribleness of blue light for keeping us up at night, the cities decided that, well, we're just gonna install street lamps in the, in the, in the streets to give you even more blue light. And it's just like absolutely mind-bogglingly stupid. I I I fought the streetlight thing because you know that they will broadcast light in all directions, and then you know we went from mercury vapor to LED lights, and the LED lights were horrible because those were so bright and glaring. And then now they're going to like this blue like UV light, and I'm just like, mm -hmm. who are these idiots that are making these decisions? Ask your community to change out lights and put downward focusing lights and amber colored lights that are safe for all you know, different insects and humans. So those are, yeah, those are a couple things that I would do, you know, advocate for light pollution policies to help address that stuff. So getting down to brass tacks and knowing that there's a decline and that there's environmental factors, there's human factors at play here. Is there a danger or risk of fireflies becoming endangered or even extinct on the continent, in Texas in particular? I mean, is that is that even on the horizon or is this something that may be a reality or not really? It is a reality and work that Xerxes organization and the International for Conservation for the Union of Nature did species risk assessments. And I was responsible for the Texas species. Through the work, it came out that at least two of them right now, one's endangered and one's threatened. The one that's endangered hasn't, I, I'm the only one that's seen it essentially, but it hadn't really been seen since the, the 40s. And it's a species called Pyractamina vexillaria. And then in West Texas, there's a, a species out there that is also potentially threatened because it's kind of isolated out there. And it's really dependent upon kind of wet arroyos and streams out there. So that one, those two, we've given them common names. You know, those are, are, are ones that, that we have the amber comet, for example, is the one here in the hill country. And then, you know, the one in West Texas as well, we've got the Sky Island firefly is what it's called. And those are cool. But there's also other ones. I've been on a hunt for a, a species called Photinus immaculatus that hadn't been seen since like the 20s, essentially. Wow. And I've done multiple field surveys and have yet to see it. 
It's a very difficult one to find. It could be extinct. We don't know. There's a, a firefly that occurred up in near Monaghan sand dunes. And there, we only have two specimen records for it. And it is a male and female. So they were a mating pair. And I, I re revealed that. And so it meant that, okay, well, they were here. They weren't just some migrant from Mexico that flew over the border. And they're a complete unique genus of firefly called Aspisoma. And that hasn't been seen since the 70s. And multiple surveys have been done out there. And part of that is probably the disappearance of kind of just wet areas in the sand dunes that have disappeared and provided not great habitat. It could still be there. We don't know. A lot of these, some of these things are holdovers from relic periods of, of a warmer temperate climate that are just now disappearing from, from threats, essentially. And so, yeah, we, we've likely had some things here in Texas that have disappeared. We just don't know about even. Uh, there's just a lack of data, really, for a lot of it. Yeah, it's, it's really sad to hear that we may not even know what's here and what's gone and what's disappearing or already has disappeared. And of course, they're so elusive, I would imagine, that it's difficult to kind of figure that out, as you've mentioned. So we are hard up against our time here. So I do want to ask you one last question. Your group, your website, when people go there, what can they expect and, and what all do you provide? When people go to firefly.org, there'll be some helpful information for, for them wanting to learn about firefly disappearance and ways that they can help. And there is good resources on there and just some really fun information, everything from like different names for fireflies to how to think about habitat and ways to help them. There's also information on the, the habitat certification program. So uh, last year I launched the first of its kind certification program for your habitat. And what it's going to do is it allows you to buy a sign and then try to self-directed way to certify your property by accomplishing four different things. And, you know, by doing those, you're helping to encourage fireflies to your property. And what the sign will do is it'll certify your yard and it will also tell other people that this is a valuable place for fireflies and it will alert them to help them protect it essentially. One of the reasons why this is so great is people only see fireflies at night, right? And a lot of people visit properties during the day and may not right. know that there's fireflies there. So if there's a sign to tell them that, well, this is a firefly habitat, then they're, they're going to help protect that. So yeah, definitely check out the habitat certification program. There's information on my speaking engagements. And uh, when I speak, I do a, a great big public event in Cibolo every year at Crescent Bend State Park or Crescent Bend Natural Area. That's really great for all, all ages and, and, you know, types of people. Great stuff. Thanks, Ben Pfeiffer. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Dan, for having me. And thank you all for the privilege of your time and for downloading this episode and joining us this year. We'll be back in 2024, our fifth, hard to believe, fifth season of Big Ideas. And we hope that you'll be there then. For my executive producer, the man that you don't ever hear from, Jamie Blaschke, thank you very much for joining us for another season. And until then, our next season, starting in January, stay well and stay informed. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz. 
When you visit a professor during their office hours, you're there to talk about the class or your grade, but have you ever just talked about their life, their journey? On Texas State's new podcast, Office Hours, students chat with professors they've never met to dig deep into their lives, how they got to where they are today, and advice that lasts. You never know what you might learn from a simple conversation. Listen on Apple Music or Spotify. Episodes release every other Wednesday.